Welcome back to the Longview Podcast. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, recording here on Tuesday afternoon, uh, the night before the Grizzlies have a back-to-back home stretch there with the Brooklyn Nets and the Indiana Pacers. So, And unfortunately, we just got word that John Morant is not going to be playing tomorrow night against the Brooklyn Nets, even with this ESPN all-access day. So that's kind of a bummer, but you know what? The Grizzlies are still a very good basketball team, and it's always good to watch good basketball. And I'm also very excited for a conversation about good basketball here with uh, a special guest. But first, ways to get in touch with the blog and the podcast. The Longview Podcast is a podcast on the Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network alongside GBB Live with Joe Molinax, the 3D Podcast with Ben Hogan, and the Starting Five Podcast. Make sure you get that wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast. And Grizzly Bear Blues is a blog under SB Nation. You can find it on the web at grizzlybearblues.com or on Twitter at SBN Nation. Again, I'm your host, Parker Fleming. And with me is a contributing writer for Indy Cornrows, which is the Indiana Pacers blog at SB Nation. She's one of the brightest basketball writers we have on uh, NBA Twitter. It's none other than Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be on here. This is actually going to be, I think, only the second podcast I've done out of Memphis. So um, hopefully I don't blow it and, and alienate the Grizzly faithful from my Twitter account. <laughs> uh, I think I, I don't think you'll have anything to worry about with that one. If anything, hell, hell it gets you more followers. So there, there's a double-edged sword with you. You can either uh, be beloved and gain followers or become alienated and still gain followers. That, that's I think that's the glass half full way to look at it. I'm, I'm going to look at it that way moving forward, too. <laughs> yes. Um, but first, before we get into um, a conversation I've been looking forward to having, you know, this is the, the first year in quite some time that the Indiana Pacers are on this uh, sort of trajectory. I'm looking at their basketball reference page right now, and they haven't had a season below uh, 40% winning percentage uh, since the 2009-10 season. And, um, and, you know, just the Pacers are, they're just used to either hanging around in the middle or being just a very excellent ball club. So Caitlin, I kind of just want to get a, like, what's the, what's the vibe over there with, uh, the Indiana Pacers, either the coverage, the fan base on what's kind of been a slow season for the, for y'all, because, you know, you'll brought in Rick Carlisle to kind of just turn things around and get back into a winning state that didn't work. And then kind of had a little fire sale with DeMontis Sabonis and uh, Karis LeVert. So how is, how's everything hanging in over there for you guys? Yeah, I think it's actually been somewhat of a whirlwind of a season because I think they were off to a tough start before the season even started in a lot of respects. I mean, we now know that TJ Warren had consecutive stress fractures in his left foot. So, you know, they knew before training camp that he was probably going to be out indefinitely. And then after media day, you know, you find out that Karis LeVert has a fractured back that was going to hold him out of training camp, and then he missed time. And it felt like anytime he was available, Malcolm Brogdon wasn't available. And that's kind of just been the story of this team for like two or three seasons running now, where they were just never going to be healthy at the same time. And well, you know, we're never going to fully know what they would have been 
you couldn't just keep waiting for forever. So I think early in the season when that stuff came out, um, I think that it made the fan base pretty apathetic. And then they were losing these strings of close games. They've been one of the worst teams in games that are determined as clutch time with the score between, you know, five points in the final five minutes. And it just didn't necessarily seem like they were going to turn a corner. They obviously kind of kept letting it roll until the trade deadline with reports swirling that, they were at least listening to offers on Miles and Sabonis and Karras and then made trades. And the fan base was pretty engaged about the idea of fake trades and, and who might be coming and that they needed to start losing games. And the trade deadline happens. And I think that there is enthusiasm about all the possibilities that could potentially be there this summer and liking the move to acquire Tyrese Halliburton. But, you know, I've had fans directly tell me that they're not all that interested in watching them kind of limp to the finish and, and, you know, go through the rest of this like losing stretch before they see what the team's going to turn out to be. So overall, I think that the vibe has been somewhat down. Um, It's been a disappointing season from beginning to end with the exception of making some transactions and what the possibilities might be in the draft. Yeah, it's, it's definitely um, very interesting, you know, with, with the Grizzlies, especially here very recently when the Grizzlies traded away Mike Conley and Martin Saul, we totally understand that. You know, you're, you're not exactly, you know, one of the teams that's, you know, you're not like the Houston Rockets or the Oklahoma City Thunder or Orlando Magic or teams like that. But you have these good players, but you also have these players that were kind of like castaways. You know, you can you can kind of make an argument for them not even getting another contract after this season in the NBA. Uh, but, you know, it, it's also some of the fun part of the season season because there's no worry or anything uh you're you're looking at draft prospects you're watching um young players grow I know both you and Mark Schindler have both chronicled that at a very deep level whether it's O'Shea Brissett Isaiah Jackson uh Terry Taylor who I didn't know until a tweet from Fast Break Breakfast today uh Keith Parrish where I guess Terry Taylor is shooting 75% from the field since the all-star break. Am I, am I reading that correctly? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty hilarious because he's listed as six foot five and as a shooting guard and, you know, the Pacers have had injuries. I mean, even before they traded Sabonis miles and Sabonis had, had been kind of trading back and forth with miles suffering the stress reaction to his foot and Sabonis being out for health and safety protocols, as well as an ankle sprain. So Um, They were really having to dig because Isaiah Jackson had also ended up spraining his ankle for where they were going to get depth at the center position. So Terry Taylor actually played center for them, but he operates much more, um, does more big things than even wing things or guard things. So you'll, you'll usually see him when he's out on the floor as a screener and he just inhales offensive rebounds. He's a very effective offensive rebounder. And then you know, when teams switch, he's very good at getting out of picks quickly to punish switches in that way. So you'll see he and Tyrese Halliburton operate that way in like empty side pick and rolls. And yeah, he just finishes well. I mean, he uses his length good around the basket. He has a very strong core and, you know, that's a way that they've hit. Like, I agree with you. I think it is fun to watch some of these young guys over these last 10 or 15 games and see if they can make, you know, short strides because this is for the first time in a long time. I mean, if you look at the Pacers draft history, you know, Goga's kind of just finally putting some things together, has five consecutive games and double figures. But prior to that, he really hadn't had an opportunity to play. Aaron Holiday has been traded twice in the last calendar year, and TJ Leaf plays in China now. So they've never really had a draft class like this where you can feel pretty good about the futures for Duarte and Isaiah Jackson, as well as hitting on um, two-way contracts with Dwayne Washington Jr. and, and Terry Taylor. 
um, in addition to also acquiring Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Smith at the trade deadline. So um, a lot of talent under the age of 25 that they can monitor and at least feel somewhat hopeful about and make determinations about um, who should be in the rotation next season. Absolutely. And that's not even including the fact that the Indiana Pacers have two top 20 picks this year. Uh, they own the Cavaliers pick through the Karis LeVert trade. Whether that's locks in at 18 right now or not uh, kind of remains to be seen uh, as we just wind down the season. I know the, the Eastern Conference playoff picture right now is kind of a bloodbath, but you got six in lottery odds behind the Rockets, Pistons, Magic, Thunder, and Kings. Um, I don't, I don't know. There, there's a little bit of ground to make. I mean, if you want to get top five lotto odds and pass Sacramento, that'd be kind of a hilarious timeline. But now they're shut. It kind of looks like they may be shutting down Sabonis uh, after a potential reevaluation at the end of next week. So, who knows? But definitely uh, an exciting time for content for the Indiana Pacers, even though it's kind of a, a lost season by um, their standards typically, but I want to get into like the most interesting part of their season. And that's probably acquiring Tyrese Halliburton. And, you know, Caitlin, I know y'all probably had the expectation of, okay, a Demonis events trade or even a Miles Turner trade. It's going to net somebody good. I saw they were connected to De'Aaron Fox and then just, I, I got, I'm just going to kind of lay out the scene. I was on my way driving to go j- get Chick-fil-A. I was in the parking lot. And next thing I know, I just see like, the big woge bomb of the the trade that Demonis Sabonis is going to uh, Sacramento. It was Sabonis. And I remember I was kind of a little upset because I wanted either uh, – I think Jeremy Lamb was in the trade, right? Yeah. And Justin Holiday. I was kind of thinking one of those two uh, with the like a Culver and second-round pick package, but that didn't happen. And I saw it was Buddy Heald, Tristan Thompson, and Tyrese Halliburton. So – what were kind of like your initial thoughts when, you know, you've had all the, these trade rumors for months now and it finally culminates, cultivates into Tyrese Halliburton? Right. I mean, I think it was a little bit of whiplash because, you know, we had had Jake Fisher over at Bleacher Report on our podcast and he had kind of indicated that prior to the stress reaction that Miles Turner sustained that like many people around the league expected that he was going to be one of the first big dominoes to move and that had sort of been corroborated locally and just from whispers that I had heard around the league that he was kind of the one of the two bigs that people were expecting was going to be on the move before the deadline, if not, you know, maybe even both of them. So to see that it ended up being Sabonis, our kind of threshold that Mark and I had kind of laid out when we were on the podcast was like, if you're going to trade who, in our opinion, was the team's best player, that's somewhat controversial in, in Pacer circles for whatever reason. But if you were going to trade him as a two-time all-star and only an $18 million contract, like it wasn't going to be satisfying, at least on my end, if like the team that was most notably out there was the Wizards. And that was rumored to be, you know, the equivalent. It was going to be like Rui, Denny, and then they were going to have to do some finagling to even make a draft pick available right, by removing protections on one of their picks that they owed Oklahoma, that they have from Oklahoma City. So that just felt like, you know, you're going to be returning role players. I was kind of adamant that I didn't think that they should move him until after the summer or until around the draft. Cause I thought at the very least, you know, you could see if you could do a half measure and still build with him, or there might be more teams in the fray because of what type of player he is teams kind of have to do. I don't want to say finagling, but he's definitely a player that you have to plan for and build around. And maybe, you know, a, a team that wasn't like Sacramento, who I realized they were pressing for the play in tournament and that didn't turn out. But, you know, that's a playoff contender may not be able to easily 
um, blend him into what they do midseason. And we kind of said that if you're not going to get somebody in return that's either going to currently be your best player or develop into that, why are you moving him? So I didn't really think that was going to happen. And I certainly didn't think that the Sacramento Kings, because as you said, it kept being De'Aaron Fox that was mentioned. And he obviously takes up a lot more of the cap space and is a very different player that I don't necessarily think completely fits with the style and way that Rick Carlisle wants to play. But when you see that it's Tyrese, it's only on the second year of his rookie contract, still has a lot of room to grow and has been impressive in his first 16 games with the Pacers. I, I, that's not something you can say no to if you're the Pacers. Um, and it sounds like not a lot of teams knew that he was even available and that, you know, the Kings definitely had Sabonis circled. And a lot of people have asked me like, you know, all the Pacers picked a big, I don't really, from my perspective, I don't think that they really did pick a big. I think that the decision was more about we picked Tyrese Halliburton because, you know, we're in this certain timeline of where our franchise is currently at. And he's somebody that we can grow and build with and having a franchise point guard and where the NBA is today, those don't come by easily. And we think that we could potentially get one in him. So I think that's kind of where the decision went down to. And I think that from all accounts, they're very happy with the deal that they made. Right. And it really is uh, paying off um, at the moment uh, just from just brief research on uh, Tyrese Halliburton. Uh, he's in the top 10 and potential assists while also in the top 10 and assists per game. And I was looking at the stats with the Indiana Pacers and in 16 games, he's averaging like 17 points, nine assists, three or four rebounds while shooting 40% from three. And I know this isn't sustainable, but the the players that have averaged at least nine assists a game while shooting 40% from three were Kevin Johnson, Jason Kidd, Steve Nash, Chris Paul, Mark Price, and John Stockton. I mean, that's insane company. It's probably not um, probably not going to translate over or sustain over time, but you know, it just kind of highlights the fact of the passing talent that Tyrese Halliburton has. Now that he has the ball in his hands, he's not having to kind of co-pilot with someone. So what what did, what did, can he make so far out of uh, Tyrese Halberton's passing talent that's really just stood out to you? Yeah, what's interesting about what you just said is when he first debuted for the first four games before the All-Star break, Malcolm Brogdon wasn't available yet. So what you're saying, yeah, I mean, he, he pretty much he had a high time of possession similar to what Brogdon had at the beginning of the season. Um, it really stood out how much he was looking to push the pace even off of makes and really be, you know, clapping at his teammates like let's get the ball in quicker let's go back at them the other way. Um, and the effect that was having on their transition frequency which had risen up to you know modestly, you know, by especially by Memphis standards, the Pacers were, you know, 13 or 15th in the NBA over that little stretch when I wrote about it and now that's kind of normalized a bit back to the bottom where, you know, that's kind of where Rick Carlisle's teams have been over the last like six years, including in Dallas. But I mean, that's something that he definitely provides. And you could just see early on how much his eye manipulation makes a difference. I mean, he's not a guy who's really putting pressure directly on the rim. He, he exists more in floater range and with the combination of what he can do with his floater, the skip pay, pass and a lob pass, like to Isaiah Jackson and some of the other bigs they have on the roster and keeping um, defense is off balance in that way. So um, you'll see him a lot of times using, you know, I'm going to look to the strong side corner, but then I'm going to throw a lob. And sometimes, you know, his turnovers are up since he came over from the Kings, his overall turnover rate is. I mean, I think out of like the last eight games, he's had four or more turnovers and at least seven of them. So that's something that he's got to keep in check. But I think part of that stemming from that his teammates still have to adapt to playing with a playmaker like him. Um, there was a play, I mean, I'm sure you guys probably remember it. I think it happened against in that Memphis game where, you know, 
O'Shea Brissett is so active moving away from the ball and screening. He's kind of always moving. He set a flare screen and slipped to the basket and, and ended up getting hit on the shoulder by like a no-look pass that Tyrese threw. So some of those live ball turnovers, I think he's aware and probably knows that he needs to cut down on, but I think some of it just comes from building chemistry with teammates. I think the other thing that I've noticed the longer that he's been here because Malcolm has been available again, they have been more evenly distributing that time of possession. It's, it's more of an even divide. You'll see them getting staggered fairly often, except for against Houston, they played more of their minutes together, but they're giving Malcolm Brogdon space to still play point guard with bench units. And sometimes at the beginning of the games, there'll be more Tyrese, you know, handling the action. And then at the end of games, it, it tilts more toward Brogdon in part because, you know, as only being a second year player, 22 years old, he still needs to grow a little bit and what he does against certain types of coverages. So um, I think he needs to get deeper off of ball screens at times to actually force the defense to commit. And then occasionally, again, another Memphis thing, like when the Pacers were in the second quarter and got outscored by 42 to 24 or whatever it was, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. was out there at solo five and, and putting length and switching out to Tyrese. And a lot of times he doesn't want any part of that. Like if it's a guy like Evan Mobley, or even Isaiah Stewart up in Detroit, he, he struggles a little bit to turn on the Jets and get past and put pressure on bigs and engage with them when it's in a switching situation. But um, he's also just somebody, I mean, what you're saying with the passing, that by nature, um, he's not going to take a lot of bad shots and he's going to look to make the extra pass, which I think is kind of comparable with how, I mean, not completely. We know what John Morant does as being a high volume rim attacker and highlight factory, but just the inclusiveness that both of them kind of play with where you can see that, you know, they want to involve their teammates. Absolutely. I think one of the, uh, the coolest aspects of it, at least from the, the Grizzlies uh, point of view with John Morant, you know, you're talking about going, going deeper and um, kind of just putting pressure on defense and force it to shift. I think one of the coolest things that I've seen John Morant really develop in he's done it since his rookie year, but it's just really taken another gear is he'll commit to the drive and then he'll kind of like let go, kind of let go of the gas a little bit and he's prepared to like shoot a, like a little floater uh, around the restricted circle. And then he will just like fire out a pass to the corner to like Desmond Bain, Zaire Williams or Jaron Jackson Jr. And you're just like, how the hell did he see that? And it just opens up a wide open three pointer because when your team is, in the bottom five and three point percentage and your point guard is a passing savant that also leads the league in points in the paint. It's going to cause some defensive shifts uh, where, you know, sometimes you're going to have like three or four guys collapse. And next thing you know, anybody around the outside is just open, open from three. Is that kind of like what you're alluding to? And this like digging deeper kind of, kind of deal for uh, Tyrese Halberton. Right. Because I mean, I think right now, I mean, the kind of, again, the difference between the two of them is that when he gets a switch, he's going to be more apt to create space against the big and keep a three, a three. He has, he's very good with his footwork to get, you know, to sidestep threes, be able to create that space. But sometimes even when it isn't a switch, like, you know, Steven Adams might be in a drop and Tyus Jones is really harassing him in rear view pursuit, as was the case in that game against Memphis last week when he went two of 10, you know, he might see Steven Adams in that drop and he has, you know, an available avenue to go the rest of the way to the rim, but he, he might not even look at it. Like he'll already be looking at the corner to kind of make that pass. And then he'll jump past to it before he's gotten Steven Adams to commit to what he's doing. And before he's gotten that tagger from the corner to fully rotate over. 
So if he goes, you know, a couple extra dribbles deeper into that big to get them to pay attention to him rather than retreating, you know, to Isaiah Jackson on the lob, I think that will continue to just make his passing that much more impactful because he already wants to do it. Like I said, I mean, when you watch jaw, like I think a lot of teams have like one pet action that you can kind of point to. Like when you watch the Atlanta Hawks, you know that Trey Young's going to run, you know, a bunch of double drags with the two bigs and one rolling and one popping and two guys stashed in the corners. When you watch the Grizzlies, I know that I'm going to see jaw hold up horns several times at some point in a game, sometimes several possessions in a row. And he's going to make a different read out of that every time. And when you watch him do it, you feel like they could just run that the entire game and he would keep, you know, they might not make all the threes out of it every game, but he's going to make the right decision out of it. But at the same time, they're going to start a lot of possessions as well with him off the ball where he might even just be a decoy while it's Dylan Brooks or Tyus Jones or Desmond Bain running more of the action. So even though he does have a very high usage, I think he run, you know, is in like the 96th percentile of usage this year and, and does have, you know, a higher time of possession. There is space where he allows, you know, his teammates to do things without completely deactivating the ball that also keeps um, opponents off balance. Yeah. And like for, for jaw, I guess how he typically just kind of operates and, you know, you mentioned he's not initiating the offense every time he he'll let guys like Desmond Bain or Tyus Jones or DeAnthony Melton, or when he's back and he hasn't really been back all too often, uh, Dylan Brooks, the guys that like those guys, and he's really found that niche by being served as a cutter. Um, I'm looking at uh, the NBA's tracking data right now, and he's in the 95th percentile of cuts. And I, I think one of the things that you mentioned too is they, they do a lot of they they operate a lot out of horns actions because they have bigs that can do some different stuff while also having kind of a variance in a playmaking. Obviously, Stephen Adams is kind of emerging weirdly as this like very fascinating secondary passer where he's like hitting hitting cutters on on bounce passes. He's having a little extra flair. It's been kind of fun to see, especially since with the Grizzlies and their franchise history, we're just used to that with the Gasol brothers. Um, Jan Jackson Jr. He can he can roll. He can take guys off the dribble, or he can pop. Uh, Kyle Anderson, typically he doesn't really roll too often, but he'll kind of like soft, like soft fade to kind of like get a, get a little bit of mismatch. And then Brandon Clark explosive roller can do him and Kyle can also do a little bit of playmaking more so Kyle than Clark. But um, it it is very interesting because I I remember having a conversation with um, Matt Moore, um, hardwood paroxysm action network uh, earlier this season and just talking about, talents like Ja and Jokic and their passing talents and kind of how it kind of relates to like heliocentricity. And he said, you don't, you shouldn't try to lean too much into it because, and I, I don't know, I can't even remember exactly his entire points besides the fact that, but I think what you brought up is a very good point because you don't want to deactivate Ja when he's off the ball, or you don't want to deactivate the other players because they're not getting these on ball reps. And I think that's going to be very important, not just for job, but for also for Tyrese Halliburton, especially as the Pacers are kind of trying to craft how they want to build around Tyrese Halliburton and whoever else is just getting a bunch of players who could kind of handle some facilitation on their own, 
uh, can make reads, stuff like that. So I, I, I think that stuff's right there is a very good key to kind of building a, a well-functioned offense. Yeah, because that's that's the difference, right? Like, you know, Trey, James Harden, Luka Doncic, also all very savant-like passers and what they can do and what reads they make. But if 60% of everything's being run through them, and then they're not doing anything on 40%. Like they are, Dallas this year has had Luka doing a little bit more off the ball. But a lot of times when you would watch the Hawks or you would watch James Harden in Houston, like when when he's done or he isn't running the play, a lot of times like that would end up, like I said, with them being deactivated from the action because they've used so much energy on the ball. And the difference here with Tyrese or Jaw is, is that, you know, they're going to start possessions away from the ball, like what you just said, where like I, I, I watched the Grizzlies play the Spurs and what you brought up about Steven Adams and being a secondary playmaker somewhat out of the elbows, you'll see the Grizzlies do some of that now, where like you said, you're going to enter it into the elbow and then sometimes they'll run like, you know, a dummy stagger on the opposite side with jaw standing in the corner. It gets the de- defense to focus their attention somewhere else and he'll, stay in the play backdoor cut and then you can hit him from the elbow and those types of situations and when you do that like as much as you can watch jaw get the ball at one end of the court after a dead ball situation and he might be able to push it all the way and transition in less than four seconds you know off of like a blind pig pass from kyle anderson at half court like he can do that but if he were to do it for an entire game would he have energy to probably not like so what their approach is and what the potential approach is with Tyrese, again, very different players and how they go about making their passes and what areas of the floor they tend to exist in is what you're saying. Like if Tyrese can get to a point where, you know, he can play off ball because he is the caliber of shooter that he is, but you can also see moments. Like I think it was when they were down in Orlando where uh, Buddy Heal, they, they do quite a bit with three-guard lineups now because they're starting Buddy. So it, you might see Tyrese and Brogdon and Buddy out there at the same time. Like he gets it in a secondary situation, drives the baseline, and he really wanted Tyrese to cut from the 45 angle or at least space between the two weak side defenders and drift over. And Tyrese kind of stood behind the defender because he wanted to stay glued there to shoot the three. Buddy ends up turning it over and their transition defense defense issues run pretty deep but they ended up kind of litigating that when they should have been getting back in transition so those are just like little spots where you know the value of of what I said is true that like both of them so often look for their teammates sometimes even at the expense of themselves but if you can be off the ball when they are running actions and still be involved I think that that not only conserves their energy but also like just makes for you know I, I don't know how else to term it but a happier work environment Like Mm -hmm. when I read the Michael V. Pina article that he wrote about Jaw in Sports Illustrated, like the quote that really stood out to me was Jaw just directly saying, I don't hunt shots. My teammates yell at me if I'm not being aggressive enough, which just seems crazy for the reasons that you said. Like, you know, he leads the NBA as a guard in paint points. And you can see spots like that where, you know, just like I said with Tyrese before, like you, you can point out spots in each of these games. And it's not like I'm monitoring exactly how many shots he's taken. And these last three, he's been at 10 or less. And it's like, you know, you could take a shot there, but he's going to get into the paint. He's going to be looking for other guys to get the ball. And that's kind of the balance. Like, I'd be interested to know from your perspective here, since Dylan Brooks has been back, you know, how the shot distribution has been, um, even in games here when Jaw hasn't been playing. Like, you know, it seems at times like, you know, Dylan might have, you know, 15 or more shots and maybe Jaron Jackson doesn't have 
as many and how that shakes out. Like do Memphis fans favor a reality where jaw is taking, you know, an overwhelmingly large majority of the shots or do they see more of a reality where, you know, it's evenly distributed between Jaron Jackson jr. And Dylan Brooks and Desmond Bain and, and Steven Adams. Like, I mean, in a playoff setting. I, I would, you know, it's a very interesting, uh, I wouldn't really call it a predicament, but yeah. um, that the Grizzlies are in with that. And like the, the fans, you know, I think what we're seeing from Ja is like kind of desired upon for their um, kind of, you know, he's averaging over 26, 27 points a game. Uh, he's getting the right amount of shots per game, having the right efficiency. He's not a chunker or anything. He doesn't take anything away from the other players. So I think that's all good. Uh, obviously Dylan Brooks, he he's very it's very interesting with him because for all his tenure in Memphis, he's needed to be that guy that shoots a lot of shots. Um, his first season, it was a tanktastic team. Uh, Mike Conley didn't play most of the year. Mark Saul sat out a lot of the post All Star break. Dylan Brooks just somebody had to take shots. It was Dylan Brooks. Uh, second year was kind of a wash because of injury. Third year was Jaws rookie season. Jaron Jackson Jr. second season. And then last year they didn't have Jaron. So obviously if Jaws taking 15, somebody else has to take the shot attempt. So there goes Dylan Brooks. And now his usage is still high, but a lot of his minutes have been without jaw. And I, I think really what, cause I mean, Desmond Baines provided a nice enough amount of offensive firepower where I don't, like it'd be cool to see him enabled more. But I think really what you would like to see is more of an enablement of Jaron Jackson Jr. Especially, but it's been kind of tough with him so far all, uh, this season offensively. Um, career low field goal percentage. It's even lower than it was when he was trying to get back into the swing of things last season, shooting a hair under 42%, shooting 32% from three, but he's shooting 44% from three over the past six games. So, you know, silver linings there. So, yeah, I think when it comes down to it and when it comes to like shot distribution, it all, it all kind of starts and ends with Jaron, because I mean, you're getting what you want from, from jaw. You're getting what you want from Desmond Bain. And depending on who you ask, you're probably getting a little bit too much from Dylan Brooks. Obviously, if you're asking me, somebody who kind of stakes her claim as one of the founders of Dylan Brooks Island, then I will say that he's doing just a, just amount right. But it really, if the Grizzlies want to go as far as they want to, Jaron Jackson Jr. kind of needs to step in instead of being like a, a, a 2A, 2B with Desmond Bain, and um, even if you want to say 2C with Dylan Brooks, he needs to start being more of that one and a half uh, with Job and then him and then Bain and Brooks. This is kind of how I see it. Yeah, that's what, that's what was interesting a week ago when they played the Pacers and what became, you know, the total route that it was that, you know, Jaw is out and they end up like the shot distribution was pretty even in that game. Like, I mean, Jaron Jackson Jr. had what? I think 16 shots. Yeah, Bain and Brooks, the, the yeah, yeah, each had 12 apiece. And like, you have to take that with a grain of salt because like people need to realize what the Pacers defense is, particularly in transition and, and the bigs, you know, were getting obliterated a lot of the time. And, and some of those arrangements, particularly off the dribble against Jaron Jackson Jr. But some of that was just him being aggressive as well. I mean, I think that the more that he gets opportunities like that, he probably needs to look to be somewhat of a passer off the dribble. But, you know, when jaw is out, I mean, I'm sure that what the record is when Jaws out gets brought up a lot in Memphis of, of oh, how does. successful <laughs> they've been, does it? Yeah. Yeah, it and, does. 
and and what the narrative for that is and isn't but like to me it's probably somewhat what the record is and and taking into account how different opponents defend but also like it probably isn't necessarily a bad thing that when he isn't playing guys are getting opportunities to become you know do more as a playmaker in certain settings so that when he does come back and you are gearing up for the playoffs you know maybe they're all rising together like obviously not at the same level as jaw but you know getting ready for the postseason in that way yeah i think so it definitely got brought up a lot after Stan Van Gundy's tweet. And I think a lot of people kind of miss the fact that 12 of those games, I believe came in that uh, December, no, late November, December time period where COVID just ravaged the entire league. Yeah. And uh, obviously you're not there. They weren't playing a lot of full strength players at that point, but I also think too, a, a big reason why that's the case. And again, it kind of serves as the, uh, the passing infrastructure for the Grizzlies here is their backup point guard's awesome. I mean, Tyus Jones, he everybody talks about his assist to turnover ratio. And when he starts, I'm looking at this right now, he started in 16 games and he only has and he's has 17 total turnovers. So he's only due for about one turnover when he's starting. And when you're getting that kind of point guard play for 30 minutes, where you're having a guy average about seven assists to one uh, turnover each time he's on the floor in that amount of time, good things are going to happen because you're getting more shot opportunities because you're turning the ball over less stuff like that. So I think it kind of, I think people kind of use it to deflect Jaws case for like MVP or all NBA. Um, and they kind of discredit how good the team is instead. It's kind of how yeah. I see it. Yeah. And some, of the, I'm sure that probably some of it too is the difference between Tyus and Jaws defenders to a certain extent. I mean, mm -hmm. um, you could definitely see some of that. Like, I mean, Jaw wasn't playing, but you could see how much Tyus was bothering Tyrese at certain points in that game. So um, I know that the off on off numbers are there with regards to Jaws defense, but again, then you have to look at, you know, who some of those opponents are and were like you're saying with COVID, like, you know, they held the Pacers to a pretty low point total, but um, the Pacers also just happened to shoot the ball really poorly in that game committed a bunch of turnovers like you know I take some of that with a grain of salt as well yeah it, it's very tough to evaluate but I, I think it kind of just points to uh the credit of uh the Memphis Grizzlies just how they're built their offensive system and there's one thing I, I, I want to ask you and this might be how we uh wrap up here is you know everything when it you know you can have all these great passers but it all there, there needs to be a good system around them for, for them to do so. When I was doing the research for this podcast, I was trying, I was looking at the potential assist numbers and I didn't see John near the top, but one that caught my eye was Shea Georges Alexander, as he is the only player who averages 13 or more potential assists per game, but averages less than six. So, uh, like that, but with Tyrese Halliburton, you know, he's averaging about eight little under eight assists per game has about I want to say it was like 15 to 16 potential assists per game but just as the Pacers are continuing to build and form something around Tyrese Halliburton you know what are some things that you see that they need to really kind of enable him as a passer and even likewise like what are some elements that you think they could potentially take from like how the Grizzlies had developed their passing infrastructure because I mean around jaw each season they've been in the top three and assist per game and now it's finally uh 
kind of uh, leading to a top 10 offense for them as well in year three, just what, what are some elements that you want to see the Pacers kind of grow in or add to as they're kind of trying to round out this core with Tyrese Halliburton as their first real cornerstone of the team? Right. So, I mean, when we're talking about assists, especially with what you're pointing out there with Shea Gilgis and the, the differential there, like obviously it, it takes two people to record an assist. You have to make the shot. And Oklahoma City, you know, has been one of the worst offenses in the NBA in part because of how they've shot the ball. So if he's passing out to a three point shooter and they're missing a shot, you know, no actual assist for Ty or for Shea. And Tyrese's case, like, even though the roster is in a depleted state, I, I pointed this out in an article I wrote, just watching how Tyrese was manipulating double drags and how much easier some of those reads were than what was the case for Malcolm Brogdon earlier in the season, which, I mean, Tyrese, by comparison, has a better passing feel and, and ability to manipulate and shake defenders than Malcolm does regardless. But, you know, early in the year, they're playing Turner and Sabonis together. So if they're the two screeners, a lot of times, like Miles can shoot the three, but a lot of times defenders don't necessarily, like he doesn't demand a lot of gravity. So then both defenders in that situation are going to go with Sabonis, which is going to make that passing lane for Brogdon, you know, more crowded. And a lot of times Sabonis was kind of just being, I mean, by, by the end of what his tenure was with the Pacers, he was like fourth in the league and, and role man scoring. But early in the season, that was kind of an abstract concept to a degree because of what the spacing situation was. You know, the Pacers were one of the worst three-point shooting teams in terms of percentage. And, and most of the time, if you really watched, there'd be, you know, one, two, three people with one foot in the paint whenever Sabonis was out there, which made things a lot harder for him and probably spoke even better of what his production was given what the circumstances were around him. But, you know, when this trade happens, the difference is, is like Buddy Heald's not shooting the ball well this season by comparison to his own standard. He's missed like 30 of his last 43s, even for the Pacers. But teams still respect him as a shooter, in part because of how he presents himself in transition and just because of what his reputation is. So they'll plug him in at times as the first screener. And then, you know, you have Isaiah Jackson as a lob threat. You have Chris Duarte in the opposite corner that's holding a lot more space so that those reads are just easier. So I think you want to maintain that as you continue to upgrade on some of those positions, or you continue to watch Chris Duarte and Isaiah Jackson grow, hopefully as first round picks. But also like, if you look at the roster as a whole, they've, they've been pretty decent in what they've scored in paint points in part because of, you know, his passing and lob threats. But in terms of just from the guard position, he's not somebody who's going to put a lot of pressure on the rim and neither is Chris Duarte necessarily on volume. That's not necessarily Buddy Heald's game, even though he has been better at it since coming over from Sacramento. Um, Brogdon has really stepped up in that area, but if they don't retain some of these veterans, because we don't fully know, you know, what complete direction they want to go in, they've said, you know, that I've heard Tyrese and others mention the idea of a soft rebuild where, you know, maybe you're out for a year and you want to be competitive again next year. Um, I don't know if Malcolm Brogdon will be part of that or not, depending upon how they see his timeline, but he's kind of their one rim threat. So I think you need to have somebody as a second side attacker who can complement and, and make plays for Tyrese and also be available because that's kind of been the biggest hang up with Brogdon. He's a very effective player. He just doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the availability. And that's kind of something that they have to consider in broader strokes with TJ Warren miles and Malcolm, like each of them holds value and you can point out very clear reasons that they've missed them. But if they can't be on the court for more than however many games, you know, per season, how long are you going to wait on that to kind of come into fruition? But um, I think if you're looking at just Tyrese and Chris Duarte, 
both of them as defenders really slot in better working off the ball. So I think a lot for the Pacers, their offense has been there. Like you can see the bones of that coming together. I think what they need to address is the other end of the floor. So they need to find somebody who can defend the point of attack. So the two of them can play off or, you know, more easily switch with a stronger on ball defender than what they've had. So I'm sure that sounds like a cop-out when you ask me more about um, an offensive question, but the reality for the Pacers is that they started the season saying that they needed to address the defense and they actually got worse on defense this year in part because of the injuries, but also because of somewhat of what their approach has been. But, you know, if you look at Memphis and some of their passing, obviously they live in transition. They have the highest transition frequency in the NBA and the Pacers, I think can do more of that with Tyrese as their lead point guard and be getting runouts. And some of their players are a little bit better than at that than others. Um, I know they have an emphasis about how quickly they want against get across half court because Tyrese is very good at throwing advanced passes and uh, pushing the ball up the floor, like I said. So you want to establish a roster that's going to be able to feasibly do that um, mm-hmm. and hope that Rick Carlisle is going to lean into it more. Like he says he wants them to run, and, and they've been putting that out there. It just hasn't necessarily been a feature of his teams. I, I feel that. And, you know, it's not a cop-out. Here, I'll ask you. I'll ask you this, so you can kind of feel like it's less of a cop out. Do you, <laughs> do you think that with even in these sixteen games, do you think that Tyrese Halberton has kind of sold you on the fact that, that he could be the league or the future, or do you want to take advantage of his malleability and potentially get, you know, another league guard uh, down the road, whether it's um, bought more than likely probably by draft. No, I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, when they acquired him, they used the words franchise point guard. I believe Kevin Pritchard even kind of evoked the names of Andrew Luck and Peyton Manning with the Colts and that they've gotten somebody that they think can do that. Um, they kind of walked that back a little bit when Malcolm Brogdon returned to the lineup and were like, well, we have two point guards and we're not going to have to run plays because they're always going to be out there. But I think that they see Tyrese Halliburton as, as their future point guard who they're going to have under contract control for a long while, even if that does mean that, you know, he can also play off ball in some of the ways we were describing with John and Tyrese earlier in the pod. Um, if they were to acquire, you know, somebody like Jaden Ivy, who's a really explosive driver in the draft or, or somebody along those lines where there would be opportunities for him to spot up and shoot. But um, I think I and they envision him as the franchise point guard. Uh, that, that'd be great because, you know, Tyrese Halburn, fun player to watch. Also, just a really charismatic player off the court, very available, makes himself very available to, you know, being open about his um, experiences. I thought all the stuff that he did about the trade, whether that was uh, the old man in the three uh, interview that he did, or um, I think there was a, I forgot who wrote out, it was something like GQ or something wrote a good yes. article about it. But I also do say one thing I wish, I think with the Grizzlies, as far as I, I think the Pacers, at least in one of these areas, is a little more ahead. So I, I think they got everything nailed down with, you know, their message is getting as many playmakers as possible so that, you know, they can deploy lineups that have playmakers from all five positions. I think they have that. Obviously, three-point shooting is definitely the eyesore there. That comes with uh, the three-point improvements from Jaron Jackson Jr., but also the sustainability of Zaire Williams as a three-point shooter. Uh, he's really come on since uh, February. As a three-point shooter, he shot 45% in that month, and he's so far shooting 42% from three in March. That's going to be big. But uh, And as much as I love 
Brandon Clark and um, just what he provides as a role or as a paint scorer. I would just I would pay to see a seven like a seven foot lob threat next to John Morant because I think Jaw is going to be like a lot like one of those point guards kind of like how CP3 where or even James Harden where those seven foot athletic big men who kind of come across as raw but they just finish all these lobs kind of like Isaiah Jackson yeah in Indiana like that's the kind of point guard or the kind of center that I want next to John Morant down the down the road do I want to spend that on a starter probably not but like a reserve big man like that that would be that's probably like obviously shooters because of the way the league is and what it just does to the defense when you have a driver like John Morant surrounded by shooters, but giving him a guy that that's a seven foot lob threat, kind of in that same realm, Isaiah Jackson. I, I I tweeted a while back about Mitchell Robinson. That that would be ideal next to job. But I think so far both teams are they've really got a nice system going that will that just enables honestly two of the uh, brightest young passers that we have in the league. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good one with Jaw because, you know, it just complements their floater games very well when you have a guy who can can rise up and catch passes like that. I mean, in part for Memphis, like what you're saying with the shooting, you know, when they get into the playoffs, it'll be interesting to watch. I'm sure they'll play a lot of lineups with Jaron Jackson Jr. out there at solo center because, you know, what happens in certain lineups, depending upon who shakes out in their top eight, top nine, if you have Steven Adams as, you know, a non-shooter in the role spot with, you know, maybe Kyle Anderson in the corner, how much more attention is John Morant seeing in the paint? And then if he does spray out and kick out, can those guys reasonably hit shots? Um, I think that'll be a question though. I will end on a somewhat interesting note that a stat that I did look up a week ago when I was writing a preview for the Pacer Grizzly game over at our site is that curiously enough transition frequency last year in the NBA, which last year was somewhat of a curious year in and of itself because of COVID and, and everything that's happened over the last two years. But um, I believe that the regular season league average transition frequency, according to cleaning the glass was 14.7% and the playoffs, it was 14.1%. And what's even interesting to me about Memphis is when they're playing against top 10 defenses, their transition frequency hasn't really ticked down. So um, whether they can keep that up and whether their defense can continue to, you know, create, I know you wrote the article about cycles and, and Taylor Jenkins talking about that and really emphasizing that for the Grizzlies over the season. I think it's going to be super fascinating to watch in the playoffs, depending upon who their opponent is and, and whether the idea that, you know, sometimes I think that we just kind of latch on to cliches that, you know, the game slows down in the playoffs. And I think that's true in a lot of respects, but at least statistically hasn't necessarily borne out for the Memphis Grizzlies this year against different competition defensively, who you would think would be able to maybe get back and slow them down. So mm -hmm. just something that I will be keeping an eye on. We, we are all definitely keeping an eye out, uh, on that, especially me and Joe. We're definitely eyeballing the, the half-court offense stuff, you know, especially since uh, I think Joe in particular has a little uh, Tony Allen PTSD from that 2015 series with Golden State and in the 2013 series against the Spurs where they just decided not to guard Tony Allen. They're like, okay, is this yeah. going to happen to Steven Adams, who, like you said, he's not much of a role threat, which, I mean, in my in – my, case you know if that means you're getting more jaron jackson jr brandon clark minutes that kind of offer more defensive versatility you have a guy that can roll and has vertical pop then so be it also getting a 
a chance to kind of test and see that's a long-term plan going forward. But I, I'm very interested to see, but you know, that's some very encouraging news. I really hope that we can kind of see them get out and run, not even just for the fact that's where they thrive, but just that in a playoff setting, you know, if you can get, especially a guy like John Morant in the open floor, it just generates, it's just a momentum swinger and that's what you need in the playoffs. So I appreciate uh, that, that light of positivity right there to close this show. Yep. No problem. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Caitlin, do you have anything else to add? Want to let the people know where they can find you and your work? Right. So my handle is at C2 underscore Cooper. Like you said, off top, I'm at Indy Cornrows about once or twice a week. We record our podcast over there twice a week as well. And then I'm going to have five question answers over at your site on Thursday before these two teams face off again against each other. Awesome. And we really appreciate that, Caitlin. And thank you again for coming on. And I think I, I, I hope um, you feel like I, I spared you a little bit of not having to give a talk about a food take with Mark on the pod. <laughs> yeah, we did have an argument about ice cream earlier today. So oh, that, that's something that people can <laughs> hop on and listen to. Absolutely. Yeah, make sure you all listen. Uh, Caitlin's one of the brightest minds we have out there in NBA Twitter, always putting together good work, really good with her X's and O's. Again, I really appreciate you for coming on this pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Pac underscore Flocka. Make sure you're reading all of our work over at grizzlybearblues.com. Make sure you're liking and subscribing and downloading the Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network so you don't have to miss a single episode of the podcast on our platform. With that, that's it. <laughs>